0: This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is sponsored by Blue Apron, Harry's.com, The Great Courses Plus, and Zip Recruiter.
1: And we're back. For our fifty-eighth
2: episode and the first show of 2017, I, for one, am super excited about 2017 for Astonishing Legends. The show is really growing. We've got a live appearance in Detroit in May at Macomb Community College, and we're working on some exciting stories for the year. That we are. And
1: another news: we're hoping to launch our new website by the end of the month. And if we can pull it off, our
2: revamped store, which has been down for a while, yes, it has. And we've actually partnered with one of our listeners who runs an amazing graphic artist collective called Abnormal Ally which already has all manner of wickedly cool screen-printed shirts, embroidered patches, hats, tanks, and other super neat stuff. We'll be working with him to create exciting new limited-run designs for astonishing
1: legends that are episode-specific, as well as reworking our existing swag into
2: something you can wear to the roller rink and be proud of. We're ironing out the final kinks in the website now, and we'll let you know as soon as it's live. Also, before we get to tonight's show, we
1: wanted to thank you guys so much for sending us all the fun news of the strange that you've been sharing with us on Twitter and Facebook. We love seeing that stuff and hearing your take on it. And most recently, there's been a lot of buzz about a picture that went viral the week before last of something that a lot of people said looked like a Mothman or a demon in Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, that's a fun
2: picture, no matter what it is. <laughs>
1: well, that and my personal favorite, the two-year-old footage of a UFO
2: that the Chilean Navy recently released because they can't figure out what it could possibly be. Oh, yeah. That one's amazing. Well, the the point is, we do have thoughts on these things, but they don't necessarily make up a full episode of the show. So we're going to periodically be releasing shorts on these topics at our Patreon page, where patrons at any pledge level will be able to access them. We're going to post one in a few days with a brief discussion on both of the aforementioned topics. Okay. Well,
1: that's enough of that. Let's get back
2: into it. (laughs) Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. He is a man who never dies and who knows everything. Voltaire on the Count of Saint Germain. Join us tonight for part one of our series on one of the most enigmatic figures in history and one of my original inspirations to start our show, the Count of Saint Germain. Well, so here we go into our the better part of two years on the show. And we're finally, really? yeah, wow. we're on the backside of two years. I can't believe it. This is episode 58. That's something, yeah. Yeah, I cannot believe we are only just now getting around... Tonight's topic.
1: And if I had my way, Scott, we probably wouldn't have for this first one out of the gate because this was daunting.
2: Well, as Forrest always likes to say, we're not ready.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know I say that with every show because I always feel like there's something we're missing. There's a piece of, of evidence or information that we could give the audience that would be really cool and no one else has told them. And then at some point you just have to stop and do it. But with this one, what Scott's going to talk about here is it was such an inspiration, I think, for both of us years before we even thought to do a show like this, or thought this kind of a show was possible, because this guy was so fascinating, and he's the subject of our episode tonight. However, <laughs> my trepidation was, to tell the truth, Scott said, well, this will be kind of an easy one, right? Because there's not a whole lot. He's kind of a mystical figure, and and uh, a lot of it's hearsay, this and that, and I thought, like, I don't know, man, there's going to be so much rabbit-holing going on here. Because there's so many little directions that this could possibly lead.
2: Yeah, and this has happened to us before. It's like Charlie Brown in the football. I don't know how many times it'll be me saying, (laughs) well, there's not a lot on this guy. We'll just get to speculate and have fun with it. And then we climb down the ladder and it just goes crazy. And this guy's kind of like the human version of Skinwalker Ranch in a way.
1: <laughs> I suppose that I mean, there's so many anecdotes. I mean, he kitchen sink, yeah. Well, one thing that you point out here, and yes, there might be a part of the audience that finds this kind of frustrating, but it's a lot of anecdotes. Yeah. He does pop up in history, and at really crucial times— Documented. Yeah, in European and even By American— royalty. Uh, even ev- American history, yeah. Yeah. So he's a real guy. Don't worry that we're going to get to this and like, well, he probably didn't exist. He was a real guy, but his exploits are legendary by the standards of his contemporaries, and even today, because it still goes on.
2: Let's talk about it. Again, as Forrest said, I think for both of us, this man, known as the Count of St. Germain, was part of the original conversation that sort of led to the podcast, I would say.
1: Well, yeah, because you had a project going uh, that centered around the Comte de Saint-Germain. Yes. uh,
2: Thankfully, it's been scrubbed from the internet, but I (laughs) I did. I had started out with a blog and it was my creative idea that it would be sort of a cross between fiction and history. And I had drafted a character who was someone who worked for the Count of St. Germain, right? and the blog was from his point of view, and he was like a liaison between the Count of St. Germain and modern society. The website was called yeah. immortalcount.com, right. which I no longer hold. I let it go after we started the show, believe it or not. And it wasn't that long ago. I, I was doing this in 2011, I think, N- Well, or up
1: till that point. I think you had No, 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 going. it was nine, I oh, think. I'm sorry. Okay. 2009
2: was the last. And you actually, if you have any kind of Web savviness. We've talked about this website before. If you go on the Wayback Machine, yes, which has snapshots of the entire internet, believe it or not.
1: I don't know who did that. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's how a lot it of, works? It's a lot of mouse clicks.
2: But if you go on there and you search "Immortal Count," you will find my ancient website. And when you look at it, you will see the flavors that eventually yeah. evolved into what astonishing legends became in terms of our topics and, right. and blog it, entries and that sort of. In fact, right yeah. there on the front page, it's like Dyatlov Pass and you, right you know, Deadwater, so, yeah, uh, Dead another.
1: Water. Yeah, Dead Water. Another interesting phenomenon, but it is kind of an early, different-looking version of kind of the site we have now, which of course follows the show. But to precipitate that name, Immortal Count, yes, and the reason behind it and why at the time I thought it was kind of cool and still do, and I'm kind of fascinated by it, and I think one of the reasons that we're not alone in this is
2: that he might still be alive today. That's what some people say. So let's yeah. talk a little bit about him. There's no real way to tell you, oh, he came and he did this and that and the other, where his life, by some accounts, has spanned 200 years and is still going. (laughs) This is an Oak
1: (laughs) Island... Look, we're not going to make eight episodes out of this. No, 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 we're not. It is going to be a multi-parter. Yeah, but but... it does... I mean, I would put it this way. You can kind of zero in on a time that this one title and name that he is popularly known by, the Count of St. Germain, is just one of his many names that he went by. And that would be mid eighteenth century Western Europe mostly. And and Eastern Europe. You can start there as well. By the way, the eighteenth century. Yeah.
2: The mid eighteenth century is 1750. to... <laughs>
1: That's true. I love that.
2: I love now. There's all kinds of scholarship. Oh, yeah, duh. But I'm just going to tell you. I always yeah. take delight in pointing out the fact that it's actually the number before the century you're saying <laughs> it is. Yeah, of course
1: <laughs> you have to jump ahead because what do you do in the in the year uh, five? You're not in the right. first century. You're progressing towards it. So, I wonder if that means I'm in
2: yeah. my 46th year. You can count it that way if you like, even though I'm 47. That's right. You're send. <laughs> yes,
1: you're near you're heading up on the century mark here. Yeah, but the idea Half though century. is that.
0: Half, (laughs) thank you. Oh, yes, right.
1: Well, uh, join the club. So that's a good place to start, and that's where a lot of scholars and people writing about the Count will start. But the crazy thing is, okay, take that point there, the 1740s, 1750s in France and England, where he's more popularly known to kind of pop up on the radar, so we'll say. And you can then scroll back to 600 or 530 B.C., by some accounts, to the time of Cyrus and Babylon, or even further than that. Or you could go the other way, to the right, let's say, and into present times, because there are no shortage of people that believe that he may have just assumed different identities and is walking around today.
2: Right. So why don't we start out with painting the picture of the times that everyone pretty much generally agrees that he was definitely alive and participated in certain activities. The way that we
1: know that of the time, because again, this would be mid-18th century, 1710, to the 1800s even. And I know that that's longer than generally a human lifespan, especially around that time. Right. But that's what we're gonna look at here. And how we know that is that, at that time, of course, there's no electronic media, certainly. There's no way of recording it. What people did was they wrote constantly in their journals, especially if they were nobility, especially if they were people with education, because that's what people did. It was kind of a practice of the time to just write down in diaries and journals everything that happened and interesting people you met of the time. And so we have some reporting in newspapers and authors writing books. And so that's what we're going to take a look at here for our source of information.
2: Also personal correspondence. Exactly, well.
1: letters, right. Letters yeah. were a big thing. And if you've read any books or studied a little bit about the Revolutionary War of America here. Or seen the movie Dangerous Liaison. <laughs> well, that's, all that's the, a lot of letters. It's, it's all <laughs> letters because that's how people were communicating. So that's all really what we have to go on in people's archives. And a lot of times the families of themselves would hang on to these letters
2: for 200, 300 years. Yeah and some are still sealed. Let's go yeah. ahead and get into it. Let's yeah. talk about him a little bit. So the Count of Saint Germain has been described as a European adventurer, a scholar, a courtier, musician, composer, and linguist. He spoke at least 9 languages: French, Italian, German, Spanish, Portuguese, English, Chinese, Arabic, Sanskrit, and supposedly understood Polish as well. <laughs> he was working Although on it. I guess he couldn't speak Polish and I don't know why. I, mean, uh, well, no, I guess that, he was slacking off.
1: You know, <laughs> again, that was an account by Horace Walpole while he was in England, and that people back then, if you were considered well-educated, you spoke multiple languages because you had the time back then you weren't playing Candy Crush to learn different <laughs> languages. What I'd heard uh, as well is that if you were a member of parliament back in those times, you were expected
2: to understand Latin and Greek. So right. every. Oh, and that's also. That's yeah. actually not on the list. But in, no, he... in the book, yeah. it's also mentioned that he was fluent in Latin as well. well I think, guess we should go up to 10 languages. It's more. Let's just say plus. Yeah. We don't know... All the languages. Yeah,
1: <laughs> at least a, a good section of the Romance languages. Yeah, and he, when he, he, he probably
2: wandered into the palace. He's like... Wah,
1: wah. <laughs> so he's the glottal click language? I love that yeah, language. It is fun to hear. I, I do like it myself. Yeah. The point is that when he talked to learned people of the time he could keep up yeah and he was telling them some things that they weren't aware of so that's what impressed these people you have to realize like you know again what you're going to hear tonight is that some people have made up their minds already at the time and now and, and you're free to do that like well this guy was a faker you could say that legitimately maybe he did fake a lot of this stuff but he was really good at it so again, to get into these circles, you first had to be of high birth. You couldn't be a peasant. These people knew who their peers were. It's a matter
2: of manners and high culture and being brought up in it. So basically, you had to grow up in it. Another thing that a lot of people said who had encountered him, and various people had said through correspondence and historical reports, was that he seemed to have this uncanny ability to raise or lower his eloquence or his diction or his... Disposition in general, depending on who he was talking to.
1: Yeah, he worked so, the
2: room. Right. He yeah. could dumb himself down or he could elevate himself to the highest levels, and that he had this like unbelievable, almost magical charisma. Right. Of a Robert Downey style. But <laughs> 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 yeah. just almost like everyone that he encountered, they were wrapped with attention when he spoke. Right. And he was able to make everyone feel. Like he was speaking directly to them and that he was of their station, That's regardless of right. that station. Right, because and they it, don't, then he could do yeah. that in 10 languages.
1: They said whatever country he entered, he could speak as fluently as the locals. He, he had a slight accent here and there, depending on, uh, I think his French was Piedmontese. Uh, yeah, that with, was with the that only, accent.
2: in a lot of cases, they'll say, there was no discernible accent. Right. But then there's this one notation that was like, <laughs> well, actually the French one, it was a little Piedmontese.
1: Yeah. Well. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. No, no, he, <laughs> he definitely had an accent that was discernible, but his grammar and diction, I think, were spot on. So, yeah. And I think um, English, too, was one of
2: his weaker languages.
1: One of the quotes that people often go to, again, is Horace Walpole. Walpole's father was uh, the first prime minister of England. Oh, okay. There's one good quote here about his languages, and that Walpole also said that he spoke Italian and French with the greatest facility, though it was evident that neither was his language. He understood Polish and soon learned to understand English and talk it a little. But Spanish and Portuguese seemed to be his natural language. So... Again, here's a very educated guy himself, Mr. Walpole, saying that, well, I can discern that uh, some languages aren't, aren't his natural languages. He seems to be more, again, more adept at Spanish or Portuguese. So that's one account where people are discerning a bit of an accent, but in others they're saying like, well, no, he just flowed naturally. So again, that's
2: the variance of these people's firsthand accounts plus time plus somebody else writing it down. Here we are out of the gate, we're talking about a guy that we're saying can speak 10 languages. Some people say it was only five or six, and I say only, I, you know... (laughs) I'm having (laughs) trouble with this one. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) we are, but um, (laughs) well put. The case of Walpole, that is a legitimate member of society, that's a real person who is giving us a quote about the Count of St. Germain in relation to his own personally verified story of four or five languages right there. Yeah, exactly. So even if you say, oh, well, the rest of this has been exaggerated or blown out of proportion, we're talking about Horace Walpole saying, well, you know what? Actually, this language and that language he was okay at. That is confirmation that this man was actually capable of doing this. And it's not just a tall tale. Right. I think what you're getting at is Scott
1: and I were kind of reading through the materials here that he was saying like, well, he, he can do some of these parlor tricks, which were pretty impressive. And people were freaked out at the time. So that's why they loved having him around. He was really entertaining. Yeah. Some of that might be exaggerated, but if he did a tenth of those things, he's still pretty remarkable and truly an international
2: man of mystery. Let's talk about some of the titles that come up for him. They're almost like aliases, and, and that's, <laughs> I mean, of,
0: yeah, they are aliases. Kind of, yeah. And this yeah. is an
2: ongoing theme with him where he would turn up with different names in different places. And then you yeah. say, well, how do we even know we're talking about the same guy? Well, because the common name that was used the most yeah. and that continued to, especially to precede or surrounding an event of almost unbelievable ability, that would always be associated with him referring to himself as the Count of St. Germain.
1: Yeah, and that's the one that stuck, and I want to point out here, before we rattle off like five or six names here, that people say like, well, there you go, it's a sign of a fraud, he's trying to get away from something, he's getting away from people, he wants to hide his identity. Well, that was a very common practice of the time, because if you've watched any shows, any period pieces of of the times there, you could be executed or thrown in jail or that was worse worse than executed but basically drawn and quartered. yeah actually the the manner of death back then was pretty nasty too yeah. gibbeted <laughs> gibbet, yeah it's
2: gibbeted or gibbeted gibbeted okay
1: i'm going you. with that I finally matter. got it right yeah that's a horrible one you just hope that they killed you first rather yeah. than like wasting away in a bird cage over the docks yeah the point i'm making here is that it's a very common practice because you don't know who's looking at you, wherever you're going and traveling. And traveling was very dangerous back then anyway, but the times were very highly politically charged, as we'll see. So if you get to a town or a country and, uh, wait, you're Catholic? Oh, that doesn't fly here. And do you want who on the throne? Oh, no, 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 you're going to jail. Yes. So you kind of changed your identity to give yourself some, a little bit of running room here, a little bit of breathing space to, uh, again, you're not trying to get away with anything. And the fact is that they're pretty certain that he did come from royalty. So all these titles, again, it's really hard to fake back then, either Graf or Count, Chevalier,
2: Comte, Graf, you know, Prince. He was of that ilk. In and his own different... title, as we'll find out in a yeah. little bit, was possibly stripped from him. Exactly, yeah. So who do we got here? We've got uh, the Marquis de Montferrat. Well, Scott gets to use his four years of uh, learning French here. Uh, the <laughs> <word>. <laughs> that He's forgotten. <laughs> yeah. yeah, many more times than four years ago, by the yeah. way. You go ahead with the rest of the Oh, list. <laughs> no, no,
1: it's okay. Well, how about the Comte Bellemare and the Chevalier
2: Schoning? Count Weldon, also <laughs> yeah. well done. Apparently, well, and we'll, we'll get into that later.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, again, yeah. well done, sir. <laughs>
2: well I'm now done. going to name you well done, yes. Count. Well done.
1: <laughs> that, that, that's going to mean something. Yes. Uh, the Comte Saltikoff. Yeah. Graf Zarogi. Yes. Zarogi and uh, Prince Ragotsi. So did you do any cooking over the holidays? Oh yeah, I helped mom out with Christmas dinner. Even made the turkey, brined it and everything. And I must say, it came out perfectly. But after all the turkey sandwiches and turkey soup and all the other holiday leftovers, which I love, I'm
2: really ready for a change. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Well, that's where Blue Apron comes in. If you haven't tried it yet, it really makes for a great change of pace. Just listen to some of these upcoming featured dishes. Spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes with cabbage and furikake, Did I say that right?
1: Sounds good to me. Okay.
2: (laughs) Pork chops and garlic piccata with scallion rice and spinach. Mushroom and chipotle pepper enchiladas with lime sour cream. And
1: aside from the Korean rice cakes, those are all menu items I would never even think to attempt to make. But that's one of the great things about Blue Apron. You can let their culinary team surprise you or create your own menu from a variety of new recipes each week. And the recipes
2: are not repeated within a year, so you'll never get bored. And you know Blue Apron is going to deliver fresh, high-quality ingredients right to your doorstep that you can feel good about because the way the meats and produce are sourced is responsible and sustainable. Well, it's it's nice. There's actually no tongue twisters in there for me this week. (laughs) Thank you. That's my New Year's (laughs) gift to you. Well, speaking of which, Blue Apron
1: is not only a great gift to give yourself and your family, but also for people you care about because it
2: really is the gift that keeps on giving any time of the year. Precisely. And research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often. So why not keep building that strong family bond all year long? It's also going to help out with the family budget because Blue Apron costs under $10 per person per meal. You will love how good it feels and tastes
1: to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook.
2: This is Laura Claire. Thank you for listening to Astounding Legends. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I had to look this up. I've, you know, of course, I've heard the term Graf over the years, but I didn't yeah. really understand that I guess uh, Graf is the male and Grafen is the female version of a historical title of German nobility. Yes. Usually translated as Count. Exactly. I didn't know that. Maybe you already did. You're
1: well, smarter I, than no, I but <laughs> I had to No, as, as you're reading about this stuff, it, that's what takes so long to do this. There's so many things that we, you know, forgotten about. We have to look up to make sure that we're, at least in the ballpark here, but the point is that a, all these titles are of the same general level, okay? So it yes. relates to what your peerage in England would be to what a, from German nobility from the medieval ages would be. So again, he's in his territory here. He's with his people. And they sense that. And that's a big thing. This guy does not a pretender. He does seem to, they instantly know that this guy is royalty. Yes. Wherever he might be. Now he's a character... And he can be a buffoon or just, you know, even a charlatan and and maybe a swindler of some sort. But definitely this guy comes from royalty. So they
2: give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and as we'll see there, even people that thought of him as a charlatan still had great respect for some aspects of his abilities. Oh, yeah. well, And as still perceived him as royalty, as you said. Exactly. So there's a lot of fuzzy lines there. But like you said, they thought he was of high birth. He was charismatic. He was noble in character. And like you said, you can't really get into those inner circles at this point in time by faking it until you make it. Right. Well, listen, listen, this guy was friends with the king of France. Yes.
1: And, uh, boy, you want to get into dangerous territory, try putting one over on him and making him look like a fool. Yeah. You don't last very long. And so people said, like, well, if he is trying to get in with the rich and famous here. It's a very dangerous game.
2: Well, and back then, you know, you made the valid point in our notes here that the working class actually didn't get a chance to learn to to read or write. They weren't trained in aristocratic manners, which he excelled at. He was overflowing with aristocratic manners so much that— I think some people might say that he was soft.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He was a a bit, he was a dandy, you know? Yeah. It made me think of William Wallace here and Braveheart. And he meets with the lovely French queen, daughter of uh, Longshanks there, or daughter-in-law. And she meets him and she thinks, well, here's this rough and tumble Scottish guy Wearing a skirt and he's all dirty and uh, he's got shaggy long hair and he looks like Mel Gibson. Yeah. And she's thinking like, "Why? he's kind of sexy, but he can't be very educated and he knows Latin and French. Right. And she's like, whoa, she's very impressed. And I believe with the stories that he was raised by a a clergyman who taught him Latin and French. And and of course, uh, I'm sure he speaks Scots, Gaelic or whatever they're speaking then. But the point is, it made an impression on her because somebody of that low birth like he was, you don't get to have those skills. Now, on the other hand, he didn't dress like a dandy. You know what I'm saying? He's a rough and tumble Scottish man. And so he's, all these other fineries that the Count seemed to have, and what we're getting to is that he had some amazing talents. How do you get all these talents? Well you can acquire them over a very, very long lifetime. So, because he was an expert musician, a violinist. Yes. He
2: composed music. Yeah, he actually wrote well over 57 pieces of music. That's documented, including 42 Italian arias and seven violin solos, which leads back to another theory that he was actually the second identity of a famous violinist known as Giovannini. Yeah. We'll get into more detail on that later. And in addition to all of this, he appeared to be extremely wealthy. He never
1: lacked for money and he had he always seemed to have a source of it. And people were saying, like, where is he getting these
2: remittances? He always seems to have some, but he had diamonds on every finger, and at one yeah. point he was seen in court in jeweled shoes that had so many precious stones on them. An expert who was present valued them at around two hundred thousand francs.
1: Right. So there we are saying that he is kind of a dandy. He did like jewels. That's a big theme of, of his life, gemstones and the manipulation thereof. And what they say about his dress is that he wasn't, I mean, when we say dandy, he wasn't really flowery. They said that he wasn't really elaborate. He dressed simply, but he was very stylish. So he learned style. Somewhere. He had a manner of taste. Exactly. He was artistic, but he wasn't flamboyant. We don't mean to paint that picture, although having diamonds it's not, on your shoes. It's not, yeah, diamonds on your <laughs> shoes. Or the, on the sole of your But shoes.
2: apparently that works at that time. What you're saying is that there's a difference between new money and established aristocracy exactly. in terms of personal style. Which
1: is what you see today on television, especially with celebrities. You can see who looks classy right. and who looks trashy. Yeah, And that's what they say about old money and new money. Is new money, you get a bunch of money and you don't have any taste because you weren't brought up with it and you're just buying crap and sticking it on yourself. Right. He seemed to come with royal fineries where he had good style and taste. He had an artistic eye about him. And he got along. He pretty much charmed everybody, and even the people who really didn't like him at the time. But even a lot of the people like Casanova, that's the one person he met, said, well, you know, this guy, he might be a, an outrageous character, but he's so fascinating. Yeah. Nobody's really beaten this guy up. No, there's a little bit of uh, Machiavellian uh, pushing him around here and there, trying to exert their will on him because they fear him a little because he is so influential But
2: mostly, he's well-received everywhere he goes. People love this guy. Yeah. So in addition to all these other abilities, the linguistic abilities, the musical talent, he was also apparently a master painter. He's a master of all arts, but I guess he excelled at producing paints with uh, dyes of amazing color that he would not divulge the secrets as to how he would get these colors together. And he also was dyeing fabrics. He had masterful skills in terms of...
1: yeah clothing,
2: essentially creating clothing and doing, and dyeing was a big deal at the time. Yeah, that's
1: another thing I remembered, you just reminded me here, is that there's a big theme going on. So one, languages, music, but also dyes, colors, because he dyed fabrics. They said he had a a hair dye that he invented. I'm sure that he used on himself, and I'm sure he gave it away to the ladies, as he was said to with other cosmetics that he created. That's right, paints. Yeah, paints. They called and stuff. them paints, which we call makeup now. Yeah, I mean, paint <laughs> your face. So yeah. he. But as far as the painting, he said that when he did a historical subject, and he had uh, women in there with really fanciful dress that he painted in rubies, emeralds, and sapphires, and they said the hue on this was so brilliant that it looked like the gems themselves. And so the famous painter of the time, Van Loo, was watching this guy and said, come on, you got to tell me, you got to, how do you do that? And uh,
2: wouldn't budge, wouldn't tell him. You know what he was doing? I don't know. He was painting with light. <laughs>
1: Is that a no, Thomas... Uh, no, it's Bob
2: like, Ross, i convince convince. No, well, that's... well that. <laughs> <laughs> no, he is still alive. No, wait, Bob no, he's Ross. not. Thomas Kincaid was is he no, the painter of light? That
1: is, he trademarked that. Yes. Oh, he you was the painter say, of Actually, light. You, you owe him ten dollars for saying. Yeah, that. I probably no. He, he was the he was called the painter of light, and yeah, and it was, what was it? Bob Ross. Saying? Bob Ross. He had a phrase. Uh, no,
2: well, you got to back it up. So, if in you're case going you to, don't you know, Bob Ross, he had um big hair. Yeah, <laughs> big curly hair fro, <laughs> and he painted, yes. and he had a very peaceful, soothing voice. But anyway, but it, yeah, no, he could so have been the count, and that's the thing. Yeah, this is the thing. He he he,
1: maybe. He uh, was able to demonstrate such talent that he's not a schlock at any of this stuff. It's like, oh, the violin's screechy. Well, you know, he's a good joke teller, so let's
2: just go with that. No, no, he excelled at everything he
1: attempted.
2: Well, I will say that in the In Search Of that was dedicated to the Count that I'm actually going to make reference to later here in a minute, I did notice that in one of the reenactments where they showed him playing the violin, in the background, the audience, there was two or three royals in the court were listening to him, and this was an in search of reenactment. One right. of them was yawning. <laughs> One
1: of the he actors happened to notice that. Oh, he's yeah. fire! Yeah, I think he yeah. was like,
2: "Well, well, no, he was doing it with his hanky." I think he was. Oh, you he know.
1: was pretend. Wait, that's not an extra trying to uh, embellish. I don't know. A little, just something
2: uh, that stood out to me when I watched uh, that how in search dare of him. Yeah. You
1: know, and it was like, "Well, those are all extras, as you should know." Yeah, they're hired for the day. They're given twenty dollars and a sandwich. So. Yeah. Or they can visit the the craft service table.
2: Well, you know, though, the painting did remind me of the documentary, Tim's Ramir. Have you ever seen that? Oh, yes,
1: absolutely. Great. This
2: this is a world-class documentary, by the way. If you guys haven't seen it, it's actually a Penn & Teller produced and directed it. One or the other produced and the other one directed I can't remember which one did what right but it's a really startling film by a guy named tim who i can't remember his last name but he invented a piece of video technology the, the video toaster yeah the video yeah. toaster which was responsible for a great deal of special effects when forrest and i both got started in the video business back in the early days of nonlinear and digital editing and that sort of thing right the toaster was allowed you to do all kinds of compositing and you can pretty much I don't know, 80% of music videos for the good first part (laughs) of the 80s used video toaster effects. Right, and it's- Anyway, so he made a ton of money as the inventor, this guy, Tim, and he decided that he thought he could figure out how to recreate the painted works of the great masters. Jan Vermeer, yeah. And that's what he went after was he wanted to do a Vermeer. And in this documentary, he comes up with a system that allows him to reproduce this Vermeer in such an authentic way that it's considered the likely method of how Vermeer himself painted the paintings. Well, and the reason yeah. I bring this up now, I don't want to spoil the documentary because if you haven't seen it, it's definitely something to check out. It was on Netflix for a while. I don't know if it's still on there. That's right up there with another one of my favorite ones about an artist. What the <laughs> Bleep is a Jackson <laughs> right, Pollock. Right. Look for yeah. that one too. But anyway, what I'm saying is there's a trick to getting that done. and Well, it's highly debated now well, because there's some people who don't believe in that. Well, but, of but, course, but, you but, know the people that don't believe are the stodgy art... <laughs> You know, <laughs> appraisers who right. are I refuse. You cannot. This is not a trick. This was pure talent, and they get right, real right. mad. And by the way, watch well, the I Jackson Pollock one, one.
1: Yeah, but it's a major, well, no. But, but if you yeah. watch,
2: I hey, look. I All do respect <laughs> to people with talent, but if you no. watch the Jackson Pollock thing, you get a good sense of what the art gallery owner community seems to think of any work that doesn't have the right provenance regardless of course, of course regardless of the fact that in the case of the jackson pollock movie his thumbprint is on the side of the canvas right right so i developed a certain disdain for that side
0: no i hear yeah,
2: that side that evaluates yeah. the work of of the creative people well i'll tell you which, the, those
1: are two different types of art and the kind that the classic masters did no disrespect to Mr. Pollock, but it wasn't splashing paint around. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. It's I've seen people that you know they do the same kind of style. And it's like, well, that yeah, okay, that's kind of uh, artistic. You know, you might hang that up in your, some room of your house. But what we're talking about here with the count is that he had the technique down, which. Again, if you're not kind of a savant,
2: which he may have been of some kind, but that I'm takes saying there years. also may have been a technical oh, trick sure. oh, that yeah. he was not sharing. Right, right. And I'm not saying that necessarily makes him a con artist any more than Vermeer was if he used the system Absolutely that no. Tim came right, up with. Right, right. It's still whether you develop this skill set or you develop some kind of contraption that allows you to recreate realism using special methods right. without spoiling the documentary again, that doesn't mean that you're still not a talented, amazing artist. You could give me whatever thing yeah. that Tim developed, and I'm not going to be able to do Tim's Vermeer. I don't care no, like no, what, but, and, I, and I get that. But I guess my point was the whole reason I brought it up, and this yeah. is one of our patented, maybe too long <laughs> tangents. <laughs> well, it is going somewhere, yeah. But my point is just that this points to the possibility that the Count of St. Germain maybe knew this trick. And I, no, I see was not sharing it, especially you know. in terms of the light that's emanating from these fine stones that are in these paintings. Well, that's, that's exactly
1: ladies. right. You've come around full circle to a valid point here. And that is that there's something about colors and dyes and tints that he was very adept at. And uh, again, this kind of now gets into the area of alchemy. Yeah. And to me, that's the most fascinating of his talents because it's the most hermetic and
2: esoteric and secret because... Why don't you explain for our listeners that aren't really aware of what alchemy is, why don't you give... just a short I'm not note, really aware not gonna of put it. I'm putting you on the spot. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying, you know, it's a word that some people may have never heard before. Yeah. What is alchemy? Of course, when people hear alchemy, they
1: think like, oh, turning lead into gold. That's what everybody sees in the cartoons and then everything else as part of popular right. culture. It's
2: doing a chemical transmutation of one... One substance into another it's actually changing matter yeah from in most cases not necessarily doesn't have to be this way but from an undesirable material into a desirable one you, you, through a chemical process
1: yeah well you're reading that that's pretty no good. i just mean no, it it yeah. <laughs> am i right <laughs> no, yeah, yeah that's okay. no you hit on a key word there yeah. that's transmutation but it's not just minerals or metals It's also spiritual. This is the thing, it's allegorical. So uh, again, this is just off the top of my head here, and I I purposely really didn't want to get too far into it, because there's so much more to talk about, and we'll get to this later on down the line, because then you get into areas of theosophy, which that's a buzzword we're going to stash for later. But for right now, yes, that's the, the simple thing is people think of turning lead into gold. But that's not really, yeah, that's a transmutation of sorts. And they are related. And, uh, you know, I think even if you look at uh, nuclear science here, there's processes that happen where things are transmuted. But when it comes to alchemy, it's a life, universal, mystical life lesson that you're trying to achieve. You're trying to achieve knowledge. There's different steps to it. And I can't remember, maybe there's 12, or there's a certain number. Where the um, I think that's AA. That's the idea yeah, that <laughs> I should probably be, be in by the way. Well, no, just to be <laughs> uh, just to be at peace with yourself. Yeah. The idea though is that you take these different steps, and what you, the result, the physical item that you're making, whether it's stone or or kind of a metal or maybe a combination of both, have different names and they correspond to either different constellations or signs of the uh, the zodiac. So like there's Neptune's net. And that could be a stone that has, it looks like it has netting all over it. Anyway, what I'm getting at is that when you achieve the master level, you ultimately come to what's called the Philosopher's Stone.
2: Hmm.
1: And I'm sure you've heard of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Yes. Well, we we brought that up, I think, back at the uh, Oak Island thing. Like Maybe that's what's down there, something precious like that. And of course, people pointed out that, uh, well, that was the original title uh, for America, but they changed it because Americans are dumb and uh, we're <laughs> not going to get, oh, philosophy? Nobody likes that. Yeah, case I don't want to see that, you know. So <laughs> call it the Sorcerer's Stone. That's much more sexy. Right. In any case, and, and uh, you Potter fans out there, I will, I'm sure correct us or agree, whatever it is, let us know. But I think that's the story. But basically, that's the end of it. And what you could do is that it prolonged life. It was a universal medicine, as they call it. And... If it didn't make you totally immortal, it made you really, really live a long life.
2: Okay. lifetime. The Philosopher's Stone. Yes, exactly. And that's
1: one of the end goals of alchemy in this process. And again, the idea is that you are transmuting yourself from a base person to a fine,
2: high spiritual person, enlightened, educated. It's interesting you should say that because in terms of the alchemy, I think we should... uh, we should talk a little bit about St. Germain's time with Louis XV, who he was most closely associated with, yes. probably the, the man of the highest station. That's his time. Who acknowledged right. that the Count was a real person right. and had a relationship with him, and that was Louis XV. And Louis actually gave him a suite of rooms at his royal Chateau de Chambord yeah. and 100,000 francs to create his own lab, where in addition to all the other arts that he had mastered, he could work on alchemy. Like you just mentioned. Yeah. And by the way, I want to mention the Chateau de Chambord. I, I know that we have international listeners, but for those that don't, you got to look this place up. It is probably my favorite castle in the world. <laughs> oh, really? It is really? so beautiful. It is just stunning to look at. Yeah, yeah, you know, for a hunting lodge originally, it was not too shabby. Yeah, it's yeah. really amazing. So supposedly he had a, a bunch of lower rooms that su- were dedicated yeah. to him, a suite. Well, he, 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 yeah. he was
1: given a suite of rooms. And again, like I said, he charmed the king and all those around him in his court except for one guy that we'll talk about later. But basically yeah. he was so impressed by this guy. He's like, I want you to set up a laboratory here. And he gave him 100,000 francs to do so, Louis XV. As they say, he was uh, tremendously vulnerable
2: to being bored, so. He had been the king yeah. since he was five, I believe. Yeah, I think he ascended he, to the throne when he was five and at the time someone else ran the kingdom until he right. got old enough to deal with it and but th- this is a guy who probably yeah he was probably bored he didn't really get a normal childhood i don't think no he and, you get
1: a lot of stuff done for you and i can't yeah. remember which of the uh, the louis there 14th 15th or 16th well maybe in the 16th, 15th i think with, he was called was
2: like, louis the beloved Yes, so, his know.
1: father was uh, louis the sun king
2: very impressive
1: one of them was a locksmith because he again it was a little hobby like there's nothing much to do you know i mean you had to make big decisions but in the case of louis the 15th though saint germain got him interested in making dyes and experimenting with that and so and so he let him go and and the king was busy doing that and he said he actually came up with some good inventions that improved french fabrics uh on a whole so he actually he actually did some good work there in the lab but yeah, he was that impressed with him that he gave him a bunch of money. And you know, again people say like, well, there you go, he's trying to swindle the king out of a lab. But the thing about that is that who does that? Like usually when there's a swindle, it's like, give me the money and I'm going to go play with it. Yeah. I'm not going to con- then continue to work at your place with the mo- you know, with the money. So, as you can see here, I'm trying to even out an argument that he wasn't totally a swindler as a lot of people think.
2: No, he wasn't. And this is one of the one of the most famous cases associated with his alchemical abilities and that was the story of Madame du Hasset who I may be saying her name wrong but she was a mm. lady's maid to Madame du Pompadour who was the chief mistress of Louis the 15th and she's going to come up much again as we discuss this series but Yeah she was
1: very impressed also with the count and, she, and I she think was. she was also the one who first met him or heard about him and mentioned him to the king and then the king's like well let me see him and then, Yeah I think
2: uh, she made the introduction yeah, exactly So she wrote in her memoirs of a story where Louis had brought, and this is not Pompadour, this is Pompadour's lady's maid, Madame de Hossette. She wrote that Louis had brought a middling-sized diamond with a flaw in it to the count. He had it weighed, and it had been appraised at 6,000 livres with the flaw. But without the flaw, it would be worth 10,000 livres. So he asked the count if he could fix it. To which the count apparently said, quote, it is possible. It may be done. I will bring it to you again in a month, End quote. A month goes by. The count brings the stone back to the king and hands it over to him. He opens it up and it is perfect. Only slightly smaller than it had originally been. <laughs> really? With no flaw inside. Oh, yeah. Now, how do you get rid of a flaw <laughs> inside a crystal well, that takes a million years to form. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But he... <laughs> and and a, yeah. just, I mean, did he just go out and get rid of the one and trade it? Didn't he put <laughs> up bought, maybe the difference? I wouldn't bother of creepy
1: zirconia. Yeah. That's not totally a joke there. Because what's been said of him was people said he could, quote, unquote, melt diamonds. And they said that if you brought him like 10 small ones, he could make a big one out of it. Right. Here's a clue here about what he did. If it's slightly smaller, then maybe he transmuted it somehow down a size or two to get rid of the flaw, but it's still worth more because it's flawless. Right. So the fact that it changed shape or size or well, or they didn't say dense, it you know, changed shape. Or, or I'm sorry, that, that, not they shape. They said but, it
2: changed size a little bit. Yeah.
1: So okay, it was
2: slightly diminished was the exact. Okay. Words. So there you go. Slightly
1: diminished. Well, either he just uh, you know used some diamond cutting techniques of of the time, but he. uh he could work with it, so. But that's what he said that he could do. Is that I've seen that phrase come up. He could melt diamonds and change them. So I, who knows? But again, maybe it's not magic or alchemy magic. Maybe it's just a way of like. Uh, I'm not sure how they make cubic zirconia. I think it is involves tremendous amounts of pressure. So I don't know how he was doing it, but... Well, they're
2: making fake diamonds now. That's what I'm saying. Well, yeah, that's, you know, from, that's what I'm saying. And Keep that like, like, is yeah. from pressure and heat, I think. Yeah, you can fake the process and come up with something, but of course... They're supposed, supposed to, by the way, they're yeah. supposed to put, I think, tiny
1: serial numbers on them. They do. Yeah, I believe so. But yeah. But, uh, you know,
2: how do we know they're doing that?
1: <laughs> People are... It, <laughs> how and do we f- know? Well, here's the thing. It's like, that's not such a big deal now. Back then, that was a big deal. Yeah. I don't know his processes, of course, because I'd be doing it myself, but... Obviously he had some kind of inside knowledge or again, if you thought he was a faker and a charlatan, he was at least able to produce something that blew away people that knew gemstones that were experts. Like the guy who said the diamonds on the buckles of his shoes Two hundred thousand francs, right there. Yeah, he's,
2: he's a, either making them. Yeah, right, exactly. That's or they're what I'm saying. super easy for him to get. Of course, you know, if he's a wealthy man, maybe he had a bag of diamonds. He just went and took the one and traded it out for one without a flaw. Yeah, I mean, and, and that it is, perpetuated the mythos around him that he was apparently fond of projecting, which yeah. actually we will find some stories and some correspondence, right. we'll read you some sections. From no, that. not everyone was a fan. Not, not everyone but, was a fan, yeah. but there there is documentation, there are people that said that he confided to them that it's okay with me if people want to believe what they want to believe about mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. You know, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, so. yeah, and you're absolutely right. He may have just, just to perpetuate the mystique, done a little manipulation here, right. who knows, sleight of hand. These are all possibilities. I mentioned this to Scott. We didn't have time to really look this up, but I think there was, speaking of alchemy and, and faking it till you don't make it, there were two guys in England, I believe, that said they could produce gold coins. They were able to, to do it in front of people using some other medium, of metallic sort or chemical, and it looked like they were able to make gold coins until at one point they couldn't. Right. And then they were thrown in jail. Yeah. So that's what happens. Again, that's why I say it's kind of a dangerous game to be trying to put one over on people that could have you immediately killed. Yeah. So he was kind of a character. He was a great entertainer. He was great at parties. But on the other hand, what you read about him is that he wasn't real obsequious. He wasn't unctuous. He wasn't clawing and, and trying to really ham it up, you know, in a celebrity, you know, hanger on kind of fashion. People did invite him because they wanted to meet him. They'd heard about him. So he was invited to a lot of courts, but a lot of times he would say like, you know what, I can't do all the social things. I'm going to hang out in my room and kind of do my stuff. And even... You know, he didn't really come down to the big fancy dinners.
2: It's funny you should say that about him not coming out of his room. And you know what that reminds me of is the setup in Grand Budapest Hotel, which is a movie we bring up a lot because it's one of my favorite movies of the past several years. And of I course. say that as somebody that couldn't stand Wes Anderson when he started out. <laughs> well, that didn't to be that He's really about. brought me around. Yeah. I re- No, I couldn't. I've, I've Right. I've come around on it. I really okay. love that film. That's It's great filmmaking for me. And one of the things I particularly loved about it was Jude Law's narration of the story. Oh, and, yeah. He's got
1: a great voice.
2: And Anderson goes on to say, I think he recently he said that he fully plagiarized a deceased writer named Stefan Zweig. I guess his work was very similar in tone.
1: Yes, as you will find with the Cooper Oakley book.
2: Right, which it, we haven't really mentioned her yet, but we're going to get deep into her book here in a little bit. It's called The Comte de Saint-Germain, A Biographical Sketch of an Initiate by Isabel Cooper Oakley. And there's... there's
1: Alternate title, I just want to say this quickly, is uh, The Count of Saint-Germain, The Secret of Kings as a subheading there. And the copy I have is just a paperback, which is just The Count of Saint Germain.
2: Yeah, there's a billion editions of this, right. but they're all centered around her original book, which I think was published in... 1912. 1912. In a, in a
1: small edition in Milan, Italy.
2: So yeah. it's not,
1: there's a lot of reprints, but really, I think 1970s when they started. So it, you can find it out there, but it might be a little hard to find.
2: Right. So I wanted to read this little passage that jumped out to me when I was when I was reading the book, and it reminded me of both Grand Budapest, but also just painted this amazing picture of the Count of St. Germain. And I wanted to, force you're going to be impressed. I, this is going to be my first character okay. on the show. Okay. Well, I'm, there go. Because this reminded me so much of Grand Budapest, I've decided to read this in my best Jude Law.
1: <laughs> like I said, as, as you've you, you, you got big British shoes to fill.
0: Okay, here okay. we go. You ready? Yeah. The okay. Graf Zargi had no servant of his own. He dined as simply as possible in his own room, which he seldom left. His wants were extremely few, and he avoided all general society, spending the evenings in the company of only the Markruff, Mademoiselle Clarence, and those persons whom the former was pleased to have around him. Wow, dude, that's pretty good Thank you <laughs> You nailed it, Jeez,
2: well, I'm very impressed I wish I could say that was actually me Oh, wasn't it? No, it wasn't well, It was. you were uh,
1: speaking I saw your mouth
2: move here That you did But that was actually uh, a friend of mine That I've made over the past few months His name is Shazur Shah and Ah, yes He has his own podcast It's called The Dreadcast You can find it at dreadcastaudio.com It's pretty cool He writes short stories It's kind of science fiction a little, Almost Kafka-esque type yeah. short stories And then reads them himself Self. and yeah. they have music he's only got two episodes out now but he's planning to do more and uh, i'm a big fan of his show so you guys yeah, he's got should, a great voice That's, yeah uh, <laughs> you guys should check really it out well, yeah yeah so dreadcast anyway shazer thank you so much for uh providing that clip and letting me pretend to have a, a much cooler <laughs> for, voice for than i do for a minute 15 seconds sure <laughs> All right. So getting back to the Count, I did want to cover a few more things that were attributed to him before we move on to one of our sources, which is where that quote came from. We did want to talk about a great deal, Oakley's book here in a minute. I wanted to mention that the Count was also a Rosicrucian, which we've brought up in the Brotherhood of the Rosy Cross. We brought it up uh, with Oak Island, I think, was the last time we probably talked uh, about it.
1: Christian Rosenkreutz, who is a mythical figure, which... The other thing that you might see here with the Count—well, you will see it, because we're probably going to mention it—is that he is attributed to being other famous figures in esoterica. Yes. And, and mysticism. mysticism occultism, occultism. Yeah. All the isms. All the good isms. The mysterious the fun ones. So—but uh, he was also a Freemason— we're talking about the Count now. He was a Freemason, yes. and a lot of his contemporaries that uh, befriended him were also Masons. So again, you can think of conspiracy there somehow.
2: Yes. and In the, in the yeah. Brotherhood of the Rosy Cross, Rosicrucianism, which we're going to talk about in more detail in this series. Francis Bacon. We're going to get... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There's a Francis Bacon connection. Yeah. And it predates the Count of St. Germain by hundreds of years. However, there are people that will tell you that the founder of the movement, Christian Rosenkreuz was in fact the count of Saint Germain.
1: Well, there's two ways to look at it, either the exact same guy who's really the definition of immortality, yeah, or reincarnations of him. Right. If you want to go that route. So that's the two uh, the solutions there spiritually of how you get to that.
2: Yeah. And it's fascinating when you think about it. Now, in the Rosicrucian Order, initially, I for several years, I think, only had eight members in it. <laughs>
0: well, oh, and they wait, couldn't,
2: with... they couldn't tell each other who the other one was, or if you died, you had to find a replacement, and it was only eight. But now, oh, that's
1: like the keeper. Was it the nine, the keeper of the ancient knowledge? And then, uh, if uh, throughout history, if one dies, they have to initiate another one. But there's only nine. I yeah, that, that ugh, I can't remember what that uh, secret cult is, but yeah, basically, the keepers of secret knowledge here on Earth. To better mankind, but they have to let it out in little tiny bits.
2: Yeah. And and Rosencruz, the original, the founder of the movement, he was actually, I think, uh, born in 1378. So that's going to be several yeah. hundred years prior. But prime mm-hmm. Oak Island
1: uh, time here. Yeah. 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 In the, the 14th century. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Pretty interesting stuff. But... And, you know, that's another thing. There was an image we posted with the Oak Island stuff. I think that one, the Temple of the Rose Cross, which I'm going to connect that with this show again, too. It is the craziest looking. There's a 1618 picture of, lack of a better word, some kind of logo that the Rosicrucians use that looks like... I don't know. It looks like a, a, a small castle version of what a one-man band outfit looks like.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. I think I know what you're talking about. It's got is wheels
2: it's, and wings and horns it, sticking uh, out of it and it arms of, with swords and right. trumpets. And it's crazy. Slightly Monty Python-ish. Yeah. Although, it's very yeah. Monty python <laughs> right. So we'll come back to that. We have to come back to that. So Christian Rosencruz, the Rosicrucians. And it, the thing is that the Rosicrucianism at the early stages was connected to the freemasons and there was a i guess it was an order within an order which caused problems in the freemason movement because it was something you couldn't even get access to the freshman stages yeah. of rosicrucianism unless you were at the highest level of freemasonry right and so that rubs some people the wrong way and and we'll, we'll talk about it more later but again, this is another thing that's associated with this count, this super ultra high-level secret society that's like a society within a society of the Freemasons, which is already the craziest society ever, and now there's <laughs> like a secret thing at the top, you yeah, know, and there's this guy, guy again. Right. Here he is, right. up there doing his 10 languages, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> And here's the ironic part of all that.
1: Really, if you start diving into it and you cast aside kind of the uh, the crazy conspiracy corner <laughs> that uh, people like to put this stuff into... Yeah. Maybe it's a big joke, and they're putting one over on us, but they haven't done it yet. This is for the betterment of mankind. This is not right. sort of not getting into NWO, New World Order, and all that business. I mean, we're talking though about the enlightening of your fellow human being, so that they're not walling around in the mud; they're bettering themselves. However, it needs to be done with the proper teachers and people to come forth and uh, and give out these pearls of better living, shall we say. And that was Francis Bacon's intention, also as a Rosicrucian, that there might be a new Atlantis, and it might be, as people have theorized, maybe it's in Nova Scotia, maybe it's in North America. So getting back to it, that's what people said about the Count of St. Germain, that he was about lofty ideals. He despised baseness and uh, chicanery and all that, all the bad stuff that he himself was being accused of. So again, Rosicrucianism at this time is about helping people. It's not about uh, just subjugating them, you know, under the an oppressive order of mysticism. So there you have it. That's well, one level of it. I wanted to kind of explain that because people start hearing about secret societies and the Illuminati and they start yes. thinking like, oh my god!" But we did not say know. Illuminati. No, but they are slightly connected. At
2: least But there's no yeah. direct connection no. in any of our research connecting the Illuminati to... The Count of St. Germain. I just no, want to be no. clear about what that. What I
1: did find, though, is that he will be sometimes mentioned in the same groupings. He's not part of that. <laughs> so you got your various groupings. Yeah. You, you got your Illuminati groupings.
2: You got your Rosencruz. <laughs> okay.
1: Once you start getting into uh, esoteric circles like this, then people start lumping people in together because like, well, he was around at the same time. He must be part of this. Yeah. And you can see that about the Count. He, he was around at this time, and he did know a lot of influential people. And even here, it's suggested that he may have been in contact and advising, in a way, Ben Franklin and the founding fathers of the United States.
2: Yeah, there's some folks that will tell you, and one of whom we're actually going to be interviewing for part two of this series. We were very lucky to find her blog, fascinating work by a woman named Jessie Desmond, And we were really lucky to find her blog. We reached out to her. She has an amazing timeline of events. There's a lot of stuff that you'll find in Oakley's book, who we're going to talk about in a second. But there's also other stuff that she has compiled. And she's also had some people write in with some fascinating stories. One connecting to Bohemian Grove, which we're going to talk about in a minute, which is another buzzword. And um, And the Manhattan Project, if you can believe it.
1: And the count. So (laughs) he's tied those all together.
2: And the blog is Finding blogspot.com. You have to check it out. We're that's gonna have to,
1: ST with a
2: uh, abbreviated, so it's... Saint yes. T, Oh, yes, Saint, ST is abbreviated. So we'll have the link in our show notes there. And we're going to be talking to her for part two of this series. But she talks about that Bohemian Grove connection that we just mentioned. She also talks about, makes some of the other connections that we were unable to find in other places. So we're going to ask her about where she got that information.
1: That's what we talked about at the top of the show, or at least I did, was that you, you have... A range of time that cooper oakley talks about and that would be roughly 1710 to 1822 and again that's going past his expiration date there for the count yeah officially but that was kind of the chunk of time and but like i said with this story what's kind of also fascinating about it is that you can scroll back before 1710 and way past 1822 because he was reportedly seen by people before that and after. So those are the connections that. He just keeps uh,
2: turning up on the microfiche. Yeah, he's, uh, he's <laughs> popping up on the radar before there was even radar. You said Francis Bacon. We got to go back on that a little bit. This is yeah. something that other people have said about the Count of St. Germain. No, exactly. Is that he is Francis Bacon.
1: <laughs> well, who, this is one of the same, yeah.
2: Right, who also theoretically illegitimate son born in prison of uh, Queen Elizabeth yes and also shakespeare at the risk of angering the shakespeare wrote shakespeare people <laughs> we're right from a great deal and yeah. we're sympathetic to your cause we're not saying we believe one way or the other but there are people that think that francis bacon actually wrote shakespeare and here's the thing about Francis Bacon, he was a Rosicrucian. Right. And the whole betterment of mankind thing comes back up. And this all ties back to Oak Island and the big picture and Force's favorite expression. Mm-hmm. Oh, everything is connected. Everything is connected, which I know we've been criticized for being saying mm-hmm. that everything was connected. No, right? somebody
1: so, thought I had uh, epiphanalia. What epiphanalia. It was <laughs> no, I see? Epiphanies and everything. <laughs> yeah. I just love that he was very emphatic.
2: Everything is not
1: connected. Yeah. So, well, okay. Fine. That's the one
2: way to look at it. Sure. It's not connected. But uh, here, here's what. What is yeah. connected, Rosicrucianism, right. the Count of St. Germain, Sir Francis Bacon, and Oak Island, and Shakespeare, those things are connected. You can draw a line. You a can li- draw you know. a line. We're not saying that they are definitively connected, but we can tell you that yeah. a lot of people will tell you that they are, or that there's common ground between all these things.
1: Yeah, that was the previous era, Shakespeare, uh, you know, 1618. That whole time period is before the official real counts time, because... We're going to get into his familial line, his parentage. Yes. And uh, when he even claimed himself to have come on the scene, I mean, actually being bored. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, a little bit later here. But that doesn't stop people from making a connection because that's the thing. He was always vague. He was always jumping around. He had close confidants and he had a lot of close friends that he confided in and maybe even taught some secret hermetic knowledge to But we're not sure what they knew or if they would even relay that as being true. So what I'm saying is that he gave a lot of different answers to different
2: people. And Tess has been working hard to help sort of corral all this work that the ARC does, research work, which I I want to thank them profusely for the information that they dug up in relation to St. Germain over the past few days. St. Germain, we are still waiting for you to join the ARC. You will have to sign the <laughs> requisite paperwork. but if you <laughs> There's can, a lovely send joining email. Yeah, yeah, we will send you... Uh, we have a special patch for ARC members. There that you go. You, you can get one of those. Anyway, uh, Tess had pointed out that the theory is that Bacon faked his death, which, yes. by the way, was something that we're going to be talking about and we have spoken about in the past with regard to Jesse James and the Knights of the Golden Circle, not only the faking of deaths, but also multiple people being the same person, which is something that I might come back to in, in this oh, series. Oh, I think you should. No, no, uh, I think
1: you should. Because, yeah, faking deaths, even the Count himself
2: yeah. may be accused of that. That's right. It's also thought that Butch Cassidy might have faked his own death, and or just he's somebody did, yeah. I want to talk about this year for right, sure. He's right. on the short list. But uh, it, so it's, it's something that at the time, you know, before – the UK and the U S had cameras on every corner and at every intersection, it was a lot easier to, you know, all you gotta do is go out and kill somebody. It looks like you <laughs> <laughs> you,
1: don't, look, you don't even have to kill somebody. You just said, who did you bury? Like, yeah. Yeah, I paid this guy yeah, 25 yeah. shillings to uh, say he buried somebody yeah. done. That's yeah. it. Yeah. There's a grave. You pull a tooth, put yeah. it in the dirt. What we're saying here, especially with the count is that when you're good friends you're with, with, when there you go. Yeah. When you're good friends with the person who rules the area, and he's arranging things, then it's not so hard. Now, we're not definitely saying it that at this point, that that's no, but what the account- did.
2: But this is the thing with the Rosicrucians. They right. wanted to disseminate knowledge. At the time, knowledge was being restricted, and it was using, used as a tool to keep the people down. So the Rosicrucians yeah. wanted to share knowledge, and so there was this theory. I'm summing up very briefly yeah, here, yeah. but this theory that Shakespeare was a vehicle for getting really higher level knowledge about politics and behavior Absolutely. out to the masses. Absolutely. And it was propaganda in a way, a yeah. surreptitious way to educate the masses for no other goal than to lift people
1: up. It's putting your, your pill in your hamburger there, like if you were a dog. So you know what I'm saying? Like you're, yeah. you're getting uh, some instruction, you don't even know it because you're just enjoying the plays. Yes. And that was where it was coming from. But in, and if you say like nowadays... It's a very noble cause. Yeah, but then, and that's the thing. Like people are of a mind that some might say... Well, you know what? We deserve to know this. If, you, if we can better ourselves, why not you just, you know, release all the information? Why are you hoarding it? That seems to be elitist and controlling and oppressive and all that. Well, just think of all the crap that you read in the comments section that is just nasty vitriol. We've gotten a small sample of that. I mean, most of it's constructive, but people being nasty, mean tweets, just, yeah. and it's like, those people are not ready. They have to be lifted up a little. Obviously, there's a lot of bitterness in the world right now. People are very troubled and they're taking it out because they can be anonymous and doing it. Well, you can't give them the secrets of the universe. Imagine what they would do. Right. Obviously, right now, they're just very self-centered. Like, I don't feel, you know, I'm hurting, so I'm going to lash out at everyone else. But the idea, though, is to kind of, as we can accept it, uplift all boats with the tide, lift everyone up and uh, enlighten them on the path to true fraternity and uh, goodwill.
2: Right. So you look at the common ground of behavior between Bacon and Shakespeare, whether Bacon was Shakespeare or Shakespeare was Bacon or not, but those plays as a vehicle. And then let's say that Bacon did fake his death. And Well on I believe it was Easter
1: it Sunday. It was on Easter Sunday. <laughs> which that's is a, right. they think is a sign because like I'm going to resurrect, I'm going to return.
2: Yes, that it was a final symbol that yeah. he will live again. And they're saying that he was himself an ascended master. Okay, and now you've touched on another thing. Now we're getting thing. into yes. a whole new category of information that is another thing attributed to the Count of St. Germain. He himself is considered to be an ascended master, whether or not we say that him and Bacon are the same person. Yeah. And that puts him in a very high level of, a high plane of existence. And it, it makes him a part of a group known as the Great White Lodge or the Great White Brotherhood.
1: Not an alt-right thing. This is not a <laughs> racist not, organization. It sounds Duke, like
2: the most racist group well, of all all time. <laughs>
1: because you have the <laughs> Just because if you put the word white in there, and great. And yeah. Look, no, look, really. This is the, not... That's no. not what it is. Don't write us letters. Don't get upset. This is a real thing. Look this it up a, on Wikipedia. It's in there. So if you look at it's the... It's a belief uh, system.
2: Yeah. It says from Wikipedia. I've, I actually pasted that in here because I wanted to keep us out of trouble. Yes. The Great White Brotherhood is in belief systems akin to Theosophical and New Age, are supposed to be supernatural beings of great power who spread spiritual teachings through selected humans. We're going to talk about theosophy in the other parts of this series. That's a word you've heard us say a few times. It's pretty fascinating. So in this great white brotherhood, it's made up of people who are ascended masters, of which supposedly Bacon was one and the Count of St. Germain is one. And these are spiritually enlightened beings who in past incarnations were ordinary humans, but who have undergone a series of spiritual transformations originally called initiations. And at this point, this is a good time to segue back into the book by Isabel Cooper Oakley that we already mentioned, who herself was a high ranking member of the Theosophical Society, ah. which is very much connected to ascended masters. And she personally believed, so we, we do have a, a strong case of confirmation bias here. Sure. She personally believed that the Count of Saint Germain was an ascended master. Well, there is. Yes. Now, there's kind of like. Huh? Yeah, I just well, thinking, you if kind you're an of, Ascended Master, you're probably always an Ascended. You weren't, were Ascended. It's I like a Boy Scout. You were a Boy Scout. Yeah. You are an Eagle Scout.
1: Oh, yeah, there you go. That's, <laughs> right, exactly. Like, you've transmutated into something greater than right. what you were. And there are some similar patterns here to the life and experiences of a certain Dr. Alexander Cannon, who is one of my favorite guys, and we'll probably maybe down the line do an uh, episode on him, because he too is maybe considered to have joined the Great White Lodge. And I'm not real certain on this. I think it's because a lot of it is mystical, but somewhere maybe in the Himalayas, possibly the escaped decent folks of Atlantis who took their knowledge and wisdom for safekeeping for all of humankind.
2: Whatever part of it, they didn't leave under the Sphinx's paw. Well, according to Casey,
1: there are several storehouses of knowledge. One would be this other place, and a lot of people have linked that to the Great White Lodge. Yeah. Now, Dr. Alexander Cannon, what's interesting about him is that he's an actual physician in England. The 20s and 30s were his time member of the Royal London Society, I believe. He was a prominent member of society. But he started studying this kind of materials here, not real new agey or too woo-woo, but he had some very strange experiences and uh, studied more. And basically how it works is, as he said, when the chela is ready, the guru will come which means when the student is ready, the teacher will come. So they come
2: to find or, you. when I left you, I was the student. Now I <laughs> am the
1: master. <laughs> <That's> be- Those <laughs> are similar allegorical themes. And yeah. if you look at the Jedi, it's a little like that. And maybe that's where Lucas and uh, Spielberg and all these guys that we love are getting some of these allegorical ideas. And that, yes, the group of people who are sworn to protect, who have kind of special powers like the Jedi they are keeping this knowledge for the betterment of other beings. Right. You know, so again, it's all for good. It's and big um, picture stuff. It is very big. It's the biggest picture. So at least in this galaxy yeah, that we're in now. So anyway, as far as the Great White Lodge, some would say like, yes, uh, at some point, again with St. Germain, because he kind of arrived on the scene and he had all this these kind of fantastical things that he could do. And he was quite a, a remarkable guy anyway. They don't know when he started and what his purpose was, but there was a political aspect to him that we'll get to later that will show that he was trying to broker peace. Yes. And he was trying to influence things for peaceful situation in Europe, at which at the time was very tumultuous. Can you imagine being possibly immortal like the Count of St. Germain? Oh, man. If he was 2,000 years old or more, like some people think... That's over 730,000 daily shaves. Probably why he left his straight razors behind. Thought he'd just wait for Harry's.com to come around so he could enjoy the same close, comfortable shaves for a fair price
2: like I do. (laughs) Yeah, maybe so. But the fair part is why Jeff and Andy started Harry's. They found out that for decades, one big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and reaped immense profits at the expense of their customers. So they set out to change all
1: that. And the way you change it and still ensure high quality is you control the whole process from beginning to end. So Harry's bought their own factory in Germany. And by taking less profit and selling directly to the customer over the internet, Harry's can offer their blades at half the price. For just $2
2: a blade compared to the $4 or more you'll pay at the drugstore. And listen to what you get when you order a Harry's shaving set a weighted ergonomic handle that not only looks cool but feels right, five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip along with a trimmer blade, rich, lathering shave gel, and then a travel blade cover for when you fake your own death and need to get out of town. (laughs) Boy,
1: who hasn't thought about that? Well, Harry's is so confident in the quality of their blades, they want you to try their shave set for free. You heard that right. Just cover the shipping when you sign up.
2: Plus, as a special offer for fans of the show— Go to Harry's.com right now and enter the code LEGENDS at checkout to get a post shave balm, also free. That's Harry's.com code LEGENDS. Hey everyone, I'm Brent Jackson and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, so we brought the book up a few times that we're getting a lot of our material from and that most people get their material from when they talk about The Count of St. Germain. And you find this, even whether you're looking at blogs, with the exception of Jessie Desmond's blog, where she's got a lot of information that's outside the book. But most of the time, when you go online, you do research, whether it's blogs or you find other information from the Gutenberg Project or all that stuff, it's either stuff that's in this book or it's stuff that's taken from the book. And the book, which we mentioned already before earlier in the show, The Comte de Saint-Germain, a biographical sketch of an initiate by Isabel Cooper Oakley, which was originally published, what year did we say for 19... 1912. 1912. And then there's- in, in a small edition in Milan, Italy. Right. And so- Which we mentioned. And then there's, there's a yeah. lot of editions- which you can find easily with various openings and forwards by lots of different people. There's other people who've written seminal books. Her book is the
1: most seminal, I would say. Yeah, there's, there's, but David Hunter's written a book, Monsieur le Comte de Saint-Germain, The Great Pretender. Yes, and, that and one comes up. There's people who've written articles and uh, and such, but when you see a lot of the quotes taken from an assessment of the
2: time, including letters, quotes from letters. A lot of it comes from hers. That's right. And we asked the ARC to look into Isabel Cooper Oakley's background, and Marie Mayhew, who is one of our more active ARC members, came back with a lot of really fascinating information. Actually, it was pretty surprising to me about Cooper Oakley. We had already mentioned that she was part of the Theosophical Movement, which we're going to talk more about in the other parts of this series. But she was a prominent participant in the theosophical movement. But more than that, she was a feminist. She was a suffragette. She was a women's rights person. Yeah, I was going to say suffragette. And, and actually to the point where her husband, Alfred John Oakley, took her name, hyphenated her name. Well, that,
1: well that reminds me, there's another book uh, written by Jean Overton Fuller, The Comte de Saint-Germain, Last Sign of the House of Racuzzi. Ragoshi, Ragozi. It helps to have a hyphenated name, I think, back there to give you a little bit of cred. But she was really kind of a pioneer, and uh, not to derail you here, but she traveled. She went to go
2: look at these archives and dig through all these letters. And that's what people will say about her book, that it is very well-researched it 's not just suppositions, although we did mention earlier there's some confirmation bias because she is part of the Theosophical movement, and she's they, got her own flavoring. To they it. believe yeah. that the count was an ascended master or is an ascended master, yeah, as well, we joked about earlier, yes. but and, a holder of uh, ancient esoteric wisdom, right, yeah. but still, even with that caveat, she seems to be pretty good at presenting factual information about him and the references that she's making to the People that encountered him in the course of their lives are based on correspondence that she actually procured personally and includes in the book and all her appendices. Yes, there's
1: uh, two major sources of information here. One is from the family d'Adamar, which is, I think, Jean Balthazar d'Ademar, That family, who was a guy, he was a comte as well. He assumed that title after 1767. He was French ambassador to Belgium, and he was another diplomat and a contemporary. So a lot of those letters are in his family's collections. And and this is what you'll find. We mentioned this earlier is that people, it was very common to keep a diary of all the fun and major important things that happened in your life because you didn't have an iPhone. So you wrote it down in letters and correspondence to people. You kept your own diary. If you could write, you did a lot of writing. You went through a lot of parchment and a lot right. of uh, quill pens. So you have a pretty good record. And that's what we go from. And it's like like I said, if you read some David McCullough, any of those books about the revolution in America around that time, the latter part of the 18th century, a lot of what we know is from correspondence, John Adams corresponding with his wife. So that's one uh, source. The other one, which was called the Mitchell Papers, and I don't know a whole lot about them, but I believe it's a collection of secret diplomatic correspondence that are in the files of the British National Record Office. And I want to make an interesting point here is that I believe that she mentions, even in the in the families' collections of these noble families that had letters that she was allowed to see, there are some letters they did not show her.
2: Yeah, there was a lot that was not revealed to her and that are still in private collections that are connected to these families that have been around for generations. And whatever these letters are that are from or pertaining to the Count of St. Germain, they've never been seen. Which is interesting
1: and maybe you want to look at some conspiracy angles here not conspiracy but so much but is it embarrassing right. is it politically charged because in the case of the Mitchell papers there were some documents that they did not let her see because they're still classified even in, in around 1910 1911 when she's writing the book even 150 years later from then they were still considered national secret levels. So they did not let her see
2: those. Now, she doesn't really make a big point of that, but it's kind of interesting that she did not get to see everything. And I want to continue to talk a little bit about her just briefly before we move into some of the more interesting information that came from her book. But another thing to note about her was that she was on the lecture circuit. She went around speaking about theosophy and other things as well. Alfred John Oakley, her husband and her, they actually lived in London for a time, and then he got ill. He became sick, and it was that time when they were like, You need to move to a warmer climate. So they moved to Prescott. So they moved no <laughs> Prescott. <laughs> Prescott. So they moved to Madras and they were there for quite some time and they tried to make a go of it, but apparently that climate was rough on her. Yeah. And was making her uncomfortable. Well, I think very humid, and all that. Yeah. Which it actually reminds me of my wife who will tell you that she comes from you know Irish cold, Irish. Damp and yeah, gloomy, she, just, she cannot yeah. stand heat. And uh, so I can you, see But she's from North Carolina where it gets kind of humid. Well it gets hot. humid, but it's not like here the dry yes. heat is the problem oh interesting uh, but i can relate to alfred's situation with i'm like, gonna go down here i'm sick and then she's like i can't live here so she went back to london yeah. and amazingly she became one of the first female shopkeepers in great britain ever yeah and she, she opened, was a milliner yes yeah, she was a milliner she opened her own millinery as we talked about how to pronounce uh, millinery. it millinery millinery yeah I thought you said, "Oh, right," because I was saying millinery. <laughs> <which is laughs> I think else. that has to do with she a opened her. Years. She made yeah. hats.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so, she, she, were, and she it, was, and she was well known for these hats. Apparently, they were quite
2: exquisite and well liked, very popular. She yeah. was good at what she did, so yeah, there were many members of high society that got their hats from her. She became kind of a a big deal. I'm going to read this from this article that uh, Marie got from a Philadelphia Inquirer, dated Sunday, October sixteenth, eighteen ninety two, on page sixteen. The Gill milliner, as she soon got to be called, was one of the first lady shopkeepers in Great Britain. Every month, two days spent in Paris enabled her not only to bring back fresh models, but fresh ideas. Those of her customers who really preferred Parisian goods could have them, for she was in constant communication with the leading French houses. Soon, a dressmaking department was added to the millinery, and Madame Isabel had the names of some of the best-dressed women in London on her books. And this article goes on to point out that she quickly got to a point where she was having to turn down orders. Wow. This is the late 19th century. I mean, it's pretty amazing. So she was was a groundbreaking woman. This book is groundbreaking. She had a major influence over theosophy at the time. Yes. And the research that she did was very diligent to put this book together about the Count of St. Germain, even though her disposition is to think of him as a... And I say even though some people will have a problem with it and some won't, but to think of him as this sort of almost divine ascended master who transcends life and is a vessel for improving (laughs) humanity and is still alive to this day. Well, well, yes, this is not how
1: journalism is supposed to be, where it's just completely reportage and unbiased. Right. Which is hard uh, to find. In, which is hard to find nowadays, anyway. because now, now it's become, I don't care what political branch you fall into, everyone's biased, it seems these days. So that's not what it's supposed to be. So she's writing a book, though, on this life, and she is making an argument that it's like when you people say like, well, she does present both sides, so that's she's not lying by omission. She does say things, though, like, well, there's people that discredit him that thought he was a swindler, but then she makes an argument like, well, no, here's where he probably got his money, and it's a very strong case. So, yes, that's her argument, but she is presenting the counter-argument to the argument, and that's the tone of the book. But what you can say about her is that she is no slouch. Yeah. She's a hard worker at her hats and research, and and to back then, like we said, it's much harder to travel. She went to these houses. She got permission she went through the archive. She made notes. So that's why people really keep coming back to this one account. Yeah, and mine, this one account of the count. <laughs> this account of the count, <laughs> which my copy mysteriously showed up on my doorstep oh. one evening, late one evening, and that is also kind of a sign, perhaps. And uh, someone say apophenia, Scott. Oh, yeah. What's apophenia? Apophenia. Oh, wait. That she used is, to yes. sing with Prince. Right. Apophenia 6. <laughs> and and then that's the... Uh, what is apophenia? Okay. It's the human tendency to perceive meaningful patterns within random data. So I guess you're an apopheniac? Well, yeah. And uh, apparently it's the first stages of schizophrenia. So oh, get ready really? for that. Well, it's a precursor when you start that's seeing... The term dates back to 1958 when Klaus Conrad published a work and it's kind of basically the beginnings of schizophrenia or the onset of schizophrenia An attempt to form an analysis of delusion so yes unfortunately when you see people who are really in the throes of schizophrenia you know Schizophrenia? i've always have said my whole life frenia schizophrenia I, you know what on this show we're going however you want to, okay, s- you to <laughs> schizophrenia. Whoever, go schizophrenia How's that? Little you can split, say however you want. Splitting the difference. Yeah. You start to develop these huge conspiracy theories. Everyone's out to get you. You get a mass sense of paranoia.
2: What was that Mel Gibson movie? I liked that movie. Bird on a Wire? No, no, no. Where he's... he's he, yeah, it's conspiracy theory. Is or, that the name of it? I, it's something like that. Yeah. But basically... It's a good movie.
1: He, isn't he a cab driver and he suspects something and it yes. turns out to be true? Yeah, that all turns out to be then true. Then you're not crazy if it's true. That's the, right. the overriding thing. Making somewhat light of this, but uh, my point is sometimes the data does not seem to be all that random. Like I said, if you can make a connection here in these letters that she's writing and the names of people that keep showing up, look, it always comes down to this. You have to make your own conclusions. But hopefully what we can do here on the show is present you with bits of uh, evidence and quotes and letters, and then you're always welcome and invited to form your own
2: conclusions. Yeah, that's so, what we right. want to do. And if we can draw a conclusion, we will. We, yes. we can't always do that. No, But, but in the stories yeah. that we come to, we'll let you know if it's a theory or you know we feel pretty sure that maybe this is the way this went down. But right. And we'll do that. But we, we want you to come up with your own ideas about it. That's the kind of the whole angle of our show. We're going to give you all this information, more than you're going to get on a TV show that's 22 minutes. <laughs> that you and ever dreamed or wanted. So, yeah.
1: But the point coming back to the book is that I think I think it's a good collection of documentation. Yes, and
2: you yeah, the sh- appendices yeah. alone. The appendices are without any judgment or bias at all, right. because they are just letters. That's, That's between, between she people, people got them. talking about the count,
1: and that is one good angle on Wikipedia entries. Is that hopefully you're an adult enough uh, person and and uh, with a little bit of education to be able to see where something is leading. If there's a tone that you may agree or, or not agree with, but again, to be able to form your own conclusions within the article of Wikipedia, what's great is that there's an appendix. So go look at the sources. Drill down. Drill down. Always go, drill yes. down. And what's great about that is that there'll be a statement. There's a number there. If you hover your cursor over the number, it'll tell you a little brief description of it and where it came from. So if you don't agree with it, go check it out. Read the book. See where it came
2: from. And then read about the author. You've got to get all that framing. You were like, who is this person? Why did they say these things? Why were they interested in this? You always have to consider the source, no matter what you're reading, whether it's a Wikipedia entry or any other research. And and we found through the course of this show, I never did a lot of research beyond what was absolutely required of me in college. (laughs) right? right. But the thing that I've learned since we've been doing the show and we're looking at so many different topics is that there oftentimes is a lot of misinformation and confusion. And so what you have to do is you have to look at multiple sources and right. then coalesce what you think really happened Exactly you know, in the middle of all that. And you
1: consider the context of it. And yeah. so
2: when you look and at the... the con- and the filters yeah. of the time as well. A- absolutely. Yeah. What the political conditions
1: were, how people were thinking. And so when you look at Cooper Oakley's book, you consider the time that she was in, where she's coming from as just a person, a human being who's got an, an opinion on this stuff. And then consider the sources. So when we consider the sources that she's listed in this book, you can take them as they are. They don't seem to be shrouded. They're not too muddied in her own opinion. Although, yes, obviously as you read it, you'll be able to see where she's coming from and the point she's trying to make. But I believe it's balanced enough that uh, it's worthwhile to read. And certainly, like we said, it's the one major thing everybody keeps coming back to. So if you're interested in the count... Go to
2: that. Yes. Find the book by Isabel Cooper Oakley. And like we said, there's multiple editions of it. I procured one. We had it on the Kindle, but for our research, it's a lot easier to have hard copies. I managed to get one and, you know, overnighted. Over, yeah. the, over the holiday break to me. and
1: They're basically different publications. Again, this one, the copy that I have, which yeah, I found out later was sent to me, but it was dropped off by my good friend, Carrie Foss, who yes. we've always, you know, I've known him since college and we've always shared an interest in these kind of uh, topics. Yeah, he just, this was, it's funny. This
2: was, a <laughs> I guess, over a year ago when we had first started the show and, and Forrest and I talked, even before we recorded the very first episode, we just like, we have to do a show on the Count of St. Germain. Yeah. It was one of the topics that was like, categorically have to do this. And then this book just showed up on his porch. <laughs> yes,
0: <mysteriously laughs> We didn't know, one didn't know where it came from yeah.
1: No, I didn't at first, but he's the likely suspect So uh, I kind of guessed that uh, That's where it came from Because he but, doesn't even know. live here, right? No, he does. He he oh. lives. He kind of lives uh, in
2: generally in my neighborhood. Oh, okay. I thought for some reason I thought he was far away.
1: One thing about musicians, which he is, is kind of a side uh, job of his. That there's a lot of time on the on the van or the bus yeah. to
2: read stuff. So it's like Billy Idol. We, we, yeah. getting to know you get to meet a lot of different people. You know, I actually know that's true because you know who follows us on Twitter. Oh, yeah. uh, and has uh, we've actually exchanged a few tweets is uh, Steve Choi. Yes, who plays guitars and keyboards for the Sound of Animals Fighting as well as Rx Bandits. Yeah. I don't know how much touring he's doing. It seems like he's doing a lot of touring. <laughs> he's a very busy guy. Yeah, so yeah. I hope we're keeping him... Cut. Here's a shout out to you, Steve. Thanks for listening to the show and following yeah. us on Twitter. Oh, but I was, was going yeah, like, to say, yeah, Billy... Billy Idol never got back to me, so he's on my bad <laughs> list. When we were doing The Coral Castle, I reached oh, out to him. I was well, like, hey, dude, come on. Hey, look, he's my age, so who knows how <laughs>
1: adept he is at uh, at media. Yeah, He seems to be, though. Yeah. No, but the point is that he never
2: met Ed Leedskalnin, but he did go to The Coral Castle, and it influenced well, yeah, and Sweet 16. 16. Yeah, Sweet 16 yeah. is about Ed so which we mentioned in The Coral Castle. Episode. If you haven't heard that, go back and find that one. It's a fun show.
1: But anyway, that's the same thing with the count getting tying this back is that when you are a popular musician, and certainly there were those at the time that said he could have just made a living being a violinist. He was so good.
2: Well, you know what? We actually found some music, some recordings right. of some of the count's music. In fact, I was wanting to play some of that. This is a perfect time. Just briefly, we're going to duck down here and let you hear a little bit of the Count of Saint Germain's music performed on piano. <laughs> So that's music that the Count actually wrote. We know that. That is a fact. A man called the Count of Saint Germain. Wrote that music. Yes, and there's a
1: modern-day effort to reprint his music or republish it. And what we found here from the Society for 18th Century Music and their newsletter, Ilias Chrysocoides is trying to make a proposal to reprint the Count's music in several volumes. Oh, yeah. So there's an article here, which you should read.
2: Yeah, well, this is from issue number 16 of their newsletter, which came out in April 2010. The Count of St. Germain, and then the first birth date, they list a question mark. (laughs) Which I think is appropriate. Question mark dash 1784. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Did he die in 1784? Is the most enigmatic of Handel's contemporaries. It is generally assumed he was a member of the exiled Roccozzi family. First appearing under this title in the early 1740s, he moved around Europe, acquiring the confidence and admiration of Louis XV and Madame Pompadour, the Prince of Wales, and the Prince of Hesse Castle. Am I saying that Right. Hesse Cassell. I, I don't know. Contemporary descriptions of his talents pinned by Horace Walpole. Voltaire, and Casanova range from astonishment to ridicule and spite. Among his unofficial diplomatic missions, the one for the rapprochement of France and England in 1760 at the height of the Seven Years' War is well documented. Uh, We're going to talk more about that in part two of our series. Musicological interest in St. Germain centers on his years in Britain, the mid-1740s, where he acquired fame for his performances, especially on the violin, And his compositions. You might remember earlier that there is a theory that he was the great violinist Giovannini. That's right. Who supposedly passed away in 1782, I believe. Yeah, but the timeframes line up a little. They do. All right, getting back to the newsletter. Charles Burney identified St. Germain as a leading spirit in London's private music concerts and confirms the popularity of his Italian arias. We are fortunate to be able to verify these claims in a small though highly original body of work, including a collection of over 40 Italian arias, seven solos for the violin, I mentioned that earlier, six trio sonatas, and several English songs. Highly intelligent and often endearing, the music of the Count of St. Germain deserves both publication and performance. Having acquired copies of all his extant works from several U.S. libraries, Library of Congress, Folger, Houghton. And now from the British Library, I am preparing to submit a proposal for a two-volume edition of his music. Volume 1, Italian Arias. This is French. It's been a long time, so bear with <laughs> me. Give <Keep> it a Musique raisonnée selon les bons sins aux dames angloises qui aimant le vrai goût en cette art. Oh. Well. Favorite songs in the opera called L'Incontanza de Lusa. 1747, three arias contributed. And that's one that he is often mentioned
1: as famously contributing to. So that was a very popular opera of the time. La Inconstanza
2: da Lusa. Thank you, you did better at that. Volume two, instrumental music and English songs, six sonatas for two violins with a bass for harpsichord or violoncello. Seven solos for a violin, 1758. English songs, 1747 to 50. There is an effort to perform and podcast representative works of his through the Chamber Music Club concert series at University College London. Now we put the arc to trying to find that because this was April 2010. We, yeah, that was there was uh, we couldn't find it. So okay. it, either it didn't happen or did it's did not buried. Uh, yeah, they didn't grant his proposal or it just didn't. Or didn't it's got <laughs> or it's got bad ID three tags. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's, that could be... No, that's There's more to possible. publishing a
2: podcast than just recording it, I'll
1: tell you that. Absolutely. But that was 2010, so really kind of before the time of podcasting. Yeah. Uh, before it kind of took off. So who knows? It might have went away. These things have to be maintained as well. But what's interesting is that, yes, he wrote uh, classical music, but he wrote popular music of the time with the English songs. Yes. And the one Countess Von Giorgi, he said that he composed some basically Italian gondolier songs and they sang them together. It came easy to him, to a certain degree. He was able to whip up stuff that people respected at the time. Right. So he wasn't a hack at that. And, you know, he wasn't just some troubadour on the guitar trying to pluck his way. Everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself.
2: Oh, who said that?
1: Well, I just did. No, I mean, where'd you get the quote from? (laughs) Well, that would be the great Leo Tolstoy. But old Leo had a great point, of course. With a new year upon us, what better time to make a goal of improving ourselves and making the most of our short
2: time in this world by learning new things? Well, you know what? That is one of my New Year's goals, and I'm doing it simply by watching fascinating video lectures from The Great Courses Plus. With over 8,000 to choose from, the whole family can dive into all the topics that interest us and discover new ones along the way, whether it's great legends throughout history exploring the human brain or taking better pictures, and all of it is presented by award-winning, engaging experts. That is such an important
1: point. You know, there's a new movie coming out this year called King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, and it's a new Guy Ritchie joint. And I mean, I like Guy Ritchie, and I love what he did with Sherlock, but... Yeah, it's, it's going to get the Hollywood treatment. Well, sure. I mean, they're going to try and make it flashy and entertaining, but if you want the real scoop on the legend... you got to go with the scholars. Exactly. And that's why Scott and I are focusing on this new lecture series for us, King Arthur, History and Legend, taught by Professor
2: Dorsey Armstrong, PhD, who's a real expert on the subject. Most of what people think they know about King Arthur, like Camelot, Merlin, the round table with knights in shining armor, well, surprise, none of it's historically accurate.
1: (laughs) Well, that's not much of a shocker. And yeah, I love the legends too, but what you will find are that the real elements of the mystery of Arthur are just as fascinating. And the Great Courses Plus makes learning about all of this and more really convenient, because you can load up your watch list with unlimited lectures and then stream them from any device—smartphone, laptop, tablet, or TV— Deposit on one device and pick up from any other. Sign up
2: for The Great Courses Plus right now and get the first full month free. Start watching today by visiting our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Once again, to get your free month,
1: sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. I have an associate, let's say, who's looking for a good assistant. Oh, yeah? Well, what are they looking for? Well, just the usual, you know, someone who knows a lot about alchemy and speaks all the romance languages, can transcribe music, melt gemstones, and isn't averse to a little light housekeeping and wig powdering.
2: (laughs) Well, that sounds like a tall order. What has your associate tried so far?
1: Well, he tried hiring a town crier, but that didn't go so well. He got some renaissance fair nerd who almost blew up the
2: lab. (laughs) sounds like what he needs is a zip recruiter. Look, every business wants to start off the new year right, especially ones that are several thousand years old. And that means finding the right people for the job. Nowadays, you really have to post your job on all the top job sites. So ZipRecruiter is a surefire way for your associate to jumpstart his hiring for 2017. That's a great idea because with
1: ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 200 plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. I mean, my friend is more of a quill, pen and parchment
2: guy, but even he can manage that. Plus, to find quality people, you really need to expand your search to any city or industry nationwide, and ZipRecruiter does that. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. Right. There's no
1: juggling emails or calls to your office or turning away messengers on horseback. You can quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over one million businesses. And right now, Astonishing Legends listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ziprecruiter.com slash legends.
2: That's ZipRecruiter.com slash
1: legends. One more time to try it for free. Go to ziprecruiter.com slash legends.
2: This is Trish. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, we just want to cover a little more ground before we wrap up this first episode. One of the things we did want to talk about is who the count might have been. And the first place you go with this is the list that... Isabel Cooper Oakley makes at the beginning of her book. She has a list, and it's the one you see repeated on every blog. Everybody is ever doing anything about the count, they're like, oh, the people he might have been, they literally have lifted it word for word from her. I believe that
1: these are the main theories at the time as she discovered them, as she was able to suss this out. These are
2: six of the main ones that she was able to come up with. Right. And this was as of 1912. Number one, he is the son of the widow of Charles II, king of Spain and a Madrid banker. Two, a Portuguese Jew. Three, an Alsatian Jew. Four, a tax gatherer in Rentondo. I don't even know what Rentondo is. I didn't even bother to look it up. Five, a natural son of the king of Portugal. Six, the third son of Franz Leopold, Prince Ragotzi of Transylvania. And then it also says his mother possibly could be the Duchess Violante Beatrice of Bavaria. That's not really part of her list.
1: I think that's somewhere I collected that. that oh, might that was be, from you. Okay. Yeah,
2: that was, that was from me, but that is... All right, I so
1: didn't make that one up. no mind. I didn't, I didn't make that up. That <laughs> is another that's mentioned. So they don't really know who his mother was. In one anecdote, he did seem to carry a picture of her, literally, on his sleeve. Right. Which he showed people of a, of a young, beautiful woman, and they said that he got teary-eyed talking about her because I think that she gave him up. And then he also said he
2: wandered the woods. Okay. So that will tie into the origin story. Okay. The first Rogozi was Francis I, yeah, right? Yeah, that would be the grandfather.
1: So he was born in 1645, Francis the I. And he was a Hungarian aristocrat and he was elected Prince of Transylvania and the father of the Hungarian national hero, Francis the II, who we think is maybe the Count's father. Because I think the important point here is that there are two generations of uprisings and suppressions by the Austrians. So in 1666, Francis married Jelena Zrinska, and she was a Croatian countess. And then Francis, the grandfather who we're talking about here, joined the Veseleni conspiracy, the zarinsky frankopan conspiracy on Croatia. And one of the main leaders would be Francis's father-in-law, Petar Zrinski. And then what happened was Francis became kind of the de facto leader of this conspiracy where he gathered the nobles up to try and rise up against the Austrian Habsburg rule in the area. Well, he'd learned that the father-in-law got captured Petar and then he gives himself up and that's the squashing up the uprising. So Rakotsi learned that his father-in-law Petar Zrinski got captured by the Austrians. He laid down his arms and applied for mercy All the other leaders at the uprising and the conspiracy, if you want to call it that, were executed for high treason. And Rakuzzi, due to his mother's intervention and a ransom of 300,000 forints, several castles, was pardoned. So didn't go so well for him. Lost a lot of dough and some houses. Right. Okay, that's the grandfather, to be clear.
2: His son... Francis, Francis II, yes, who is thought to be the Count of Saint Germain's it's, father, and really again, and that's, by, and yeah. that's the most common theory, exactly. But we're gonna we can present information later that makes that seem unlikely as well. But that's the one most people will say is that Francis II Rogozzi, who was also a Transylvanian prince, yes, and not a vampire, but no, no, and a, and a national hero of yes. Hungary, and a national hero of Hungary was the father of the Count of Saint Germain. the II, though, went through pretty much. It was a peat and repeat situation where he fomented an uprising as well. Yes. Yeah. Basically, this family for multiple generations is just trying to hang on to their land and keep it out of the hands of the Austrian Empire they and the Catholic ru- Church. Exactly. Well,
1: good point. They want to rule themselves as everyone does by their own ethnic peoples. Yeah. And that's why he's considered a national hero, Francis II. And they were but,
2: very wealthy. They had lots of lands. They had. Yeah, he was they, they the they richest
1: were... landlord in the kingdom of Hungary at the time. So this leads a little into where did the count maybe get a lot of his money? Right. He was not a poor beggar out looking to grift people, although people thought that. There was really no proof that he actually swindled directly people who were complaining and he got thrown in jail for it.
2: Right. Now, and this is where the Count theoretically comes in. Supposedly, the Count was born—we have a couple of dates for his birth, which some people, as we joked about earlier, will put a question mark— There are people that will say, Leonard Nimoy, for example, on In Search Of, (laughs) mm -hmm. will tell you that he was born in 1694. There's other ones that say it was 1691. I've seen 1712. Yes, 1712. And then there's another account we'll tell you about later that suggests the 1630s. But the most common ones are the late 1600s, early 1700s. And the the 94 one seems to be one of the more popularly theorized ones. So if we say that Francis II Rogozzi fathered his third son in 1694 at that point Rogozzi, according to his date of birth that most records show he would have been 18 yeah which is not unheard of for 15, a prince 18 to have a child. 18 or
1: 15 if you count back from the date when he entered Altona Schleswig and he told Prince Charles he was 88 years old a lot of right. people will take that as a as a definite starting point work backwards but then that means according to the birth of his father Francis II would
2: made him 15, if you're doing that math. So when the Count would have been born, Prince Francis II would have either been 15 if you go by 1691, or 18 if you go by 1694, years old, which is not unheard of for... No, during those but, times, it's yeah. it's
1: possible. I mean, look, it happens today, and it, you end up on uh, the Maury Povich show. But yeah, but that, back, back then, then yeah. life
2: expectancy was 35, so that's another middle-aged at that point. Yeah, no, it, they always say, if you were 50, you were real old. Yeah. The story is that the Count himself was sent away when he was eight years old. And that would have been the year 1702 if we go with the 1694 date for birth. So let's say he was sent away when he was eight years old in 1702. The Rogozzi Uprising, this would be really kind of the second one. The first one wasn't called the Rogozzi Uprising, that no. Francis I. but Francis the the uprising was actually named for him. Yes. And that uprising occurred from 1703 to 1711. And again, just like it did for his father, it didn't go well. As Forrest already pointed out, Rogozzi to this day, Francis II, is considered a hero in Hungary. Yeah. There are streets in every city named for him. There's busts and statues and all kinds of things all over the country, apparently. Right. And you can find this out just by looking at the Wikipedia page. But the sad thing is, is that during the Rogozzi uprising, there was a... A decisive battle, and like I said, we're summing up here. We don't have time to go super deep on this. and It's ancillary to the count, but his his horse tripped. Prince Francis II's horse tripped. And it knocked him unconscious. And apparently all the folks that were fighting with him thought he was dead. Right. And they retreated. And then shortly thereafter, threw themselves on the mercy of the Austrian Empire. Yeah. (laughs) Which that, again, the second time that's happening. Yeah. So apparently Ragotzi, he was imprisoned for a bit, but he escaped. And it's a long story. He was surreptitiously, he snuck away to Poland, where during his time there, he was respected as aristocracy and actually twice offered the throne, but he turned it down. Hmm. So what we're saying is that in 1702, he sent the Count of St. Germain as an eight-year-old child away. If you look at that timeline and you go with the 1694 or even the 1691, it makes sense because the uprising was 1703, and also the prince supposedly had a son that he said died when he was four years old. Yeah,
1: exactly. And the reason they think that, that he may have said that was to protect him. Right. Again, from the Austrian, He's dead. you don't have to worry about him. Exactly, yeah. and it's like, well, no one's looking for a body. You just kind of issue a statement. Right. You have somebody sign it. Done. We're not going to look for him. Yeah. And so they think that was a protective measure to keep the Austrians off his back.
2: Right. So he sends him away, and when you backdate the dates and you deal with all that, it sort of makes sense. He went away, and then the year after that, Dad got down to business trying to save the country. Right. So here's the thing about where did he go? Where are you going to send your kid? turns out Francis II was connected to the last of the Medicis, ah. which that's a no small thing. Gian Gaston de' Medici, who was the Grand Duke of Tuscany at the time, supposedly raised the Count of Saint Germain himself, even having him sleep in his room as a child. Yeah, This could explain the Count's worldly knowledge and disposition, because the Medicis had access to everything. And this was near the end of their reign, really. In fact, the Duke of Tuscany, this particular Duke of Tuscany, was the last of the Medicis. But I would say, if you're interested in the Medicis, I bet you you could find something great on them at the Great Courses Plus, which I'm I'm personally now wanting to do myself. Because I remember studying about them in high school, but... It was a very cursory look, uh, <laughs> right? And you, but you're going to get they're uh, going to get the straight story over there by
1: a real professor, not us jabonis here. Yeah. The, <laughs> well, the, <so> other, <laughs> the other thing? Oh, I just want to mention. Yeah. The connection between Gian Gastone might have been that it was his alleged mother's brother-in-law. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. So that may have been the
2: connection, and he that was, would have been Francis II's mother's brother-in-law. Is what you're saying? I'm not sure anymore, no, it's uh, it, no, it was possibly... Or the, the
1: mother of the count. The mother of the count. Oh, right, right, with the mother of the count, which may, would have been... There may um, be a, a family or marriage connection there. Technically, yes. yes. There may have been a, a marriage or family familial connection there to Gian Gastoni, and that has got the introduction down. So right. I that, forgot about that. I'm right. so glad
2: you pointed that out. I skipped over that.
1: Right, but that would have placed him uh, being taught getting his education, his very high-end, refined education at the
2: University of Siena. Yes. So he's being schooled with the very best of them. Yes. And just to sum up the Medici dynasty, over the course of all the Medicis, they produced three popes and two regent queens of France. Yeah, not too shabby. And originally they were an extremely powerful banking dynasty. So think about the Rothschilds, basically, that sort of thing. And there's
1: a great... it's actually a lot of fun to watch. There is a series on Netflix called, I think, The Medici's. Oh, right, right. And who's the... I think he's Cosimo, one of the last uh, patriarchs there of the family, played by Dustin Hoffman. Oh, right. So that's a lot of fun to to watch him, still acting, still got it. Yeah. And I think produced and some written by Frank Spotnitz from The X-Files. Oh, nice. So a little connection there. But that's a fun look at it, a lot of those historical series. But what we're mentioning here is that this is the
2: the creme de la creme of
1: family connections
2: here. Yeah, so of it, the time. it's possible that if you have this kind of upbringing, you're going to get access to the best education that could possibly be imagined. And money. And money, and maybe that explains how you come to learn 10 languages and yeah. the arts and are just exposed to this wide variety of things because... Especially if there was a blood connection for Gaston, the grand duke of Tuscany, he may have said to himself, we're going to make this boy the smartest, most well-educated person he could possibly be. Right. But also- That may have contributed to his, you know, renaissance nature.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. A renaissance nature. And also maybe a reason later on politically to shield your real identity and your real upbringing. Right. You don't know who's sided with who in these days. So like I said before, that could get you in some trouble. And this points to one of Cooper Oakley's main arguments against the Count being some kind of a grifter trying to get in and line his pockets from the great noble families of Europe, in that there is a line, there's connection to be made where he may have gotten a lot of his money. People ask, he always seemed to have a lot of money. He had remittances coming from somewhere, nobody knew where, but he always seemed to have plenty of it. And a lot of his contemporaries, again, thought that there was something up with this guy, fraudulent or grifty. So, in talking about what they consider old money back in the day, this is coming from the book now, in a volume from 1736, The Will of the Late Prince Franz Leopold Ragozzi... In which, which is bo- Francis II, by the way. Exactly, yes. In which both his sons are mentioned, and also a third son is mentioned. So, it also states that Louis Fourteenth had bought landed property for Prince Ragozzi from the Polish Queen Maria, and the rents from this property were invested by order the king of France in the Hotel de Ville in Paris... Also, considerable legacies were left which were to be demanded from the crown of France. The executors of this will were the Duc de Bourbon, the Duc de Maine, and the Comte Chaleroi and Toulouse. To their care, Prince Ragotzi committed his third son, to whom he also left a large legacy and other rights on this valuable property. So in short, his dad set him up before he died so he wouldn't need to swindle his way through Europe. Again, that's Isabel Cooper
2: Oakley's defense of where the money was coming from. That's fascinating. And that, again, that's what we're saying that Isabel Cooper Oakley thought, and most people seem to think when they look back on who he might have been, yeah. it seems to make the most sense that he might have been this child of the Rogozzi family, especially since when he was on his deathbed, he told his closest friend at the time, Prince Charles, Prince Charles, not the Prince of Wales, No, not the current one, who's the the father of William and... uh, No. (laughs) Yeah,
1: not the one that's uh, currently uh, going around England. No, his friend, Prince Charles of
2: Hesse-Cassell. Hesse-Cassell, yes. He had told him that he was the son of Francis II Rigozzi. Yeah,
1: and and Scott and I discussed this last night after our recording session. You sometimes tell your even your best friends... Maybe something a little misleading. Not that you're trying to deceive them in any way, but maybe comfort them. Yeah. So he gave them a date of again Altona. He arrived, 1779. He was 88 years old, and maybe it's a way of putting his friend at ease. Like, no, look, I'm not some crazy immortal freak. I'm not. I'm not Dracula. I'm very old, but it's all kind of possible. So who knows why And he bring told me him. a fresh cup of blood. <laughs> Although you can't see me in the mirrors. But so who knows why he he told him that. It, it, I love again. to be the cow. <laughs> ah, ah, okay, are sorry. you talking are you talking about the Muppet? Yeah. Yes with O C D uh <laughs> The point is that It may have been kind of an attempt, or he may have been 88 years old and got the dates mixed up. We don't know. But a lot of people will take that as a solid point to start from, ground zero, to do your calculations. And the point here that I noticed with where he may have gotten his money was it may have been a legacy left to him by his father, by Gian Gaston, Duke of Tuscany, but he was also maybe making gemstones. Maybe he was making diamonds that he was selling. Yeah. Yeah. That's another point. Maybe he had a way of at least faking these things well enough that he could sell a
2: few small ones here and there, keep himself fed and in buckled shoes. Okay. So before we wrap up part one on the Count of St. Germain, we want to talk a little bit about what is thought to be the end of his life or- One of his possible demises. One of his possible demises.
1: (laughs) That's on record. So it's one of the best uh, records that people use to start
2: a pin in the map let's say of his of his timeline. timeline so in 1779 he showed up at his friend prince charles castle in schleswig
1: he arrives in 1779 the count shows up in altona in schleswig which would be today a borough of modern-day hamburg germany right now you know where that is it's kind of
2: on the border between denmark and germany and he's, he winds up spending about five years there right
1: yeah, he. What's he doing w- during this well, time? Well, what happened was he shows up and he shows Prince Charles some gemstones and a new method of, of dyeing cloth. And the prince was so impressed with this that he sets him up in an abandoned factory in Eckerdfurde. I hope I'm saying that right. That he acquired, especially for the count, to let him do his experiments. So he gives him materials and cloths and also to perform, to keep performing experiments on alchemical materials. Yes. Which is important. Transmutation. Again, it's important to mention here because you're seeing. I wouldn't say cabal because that sounds. You know, that sounds awful. But Prince Charles was also very interested in mysticism and was a member of several secret societies, right. and I believe also a Mason. Pretty much, I mean, you could just guess everybody's a Mason in here, and, yeah. and that's how they know each other a lot of the time. So he becomes a close friend of the Count. We would say his golden years here. He tells. Prince Charles, that when he arrived in 1779, he was 88 years old, as we've mentioned before. So that, again, that's another point where we
2: can kind of draw some numbers here. He's already, by the way, outlived the life expectancy for the period by twice as long. The life expectancy was 35, which we mentioned earlier in the show. So if he's 88... He's already performing a miracle just by being alive. Just
1: by, be, just by traveling, yeah. you know, which was hard back then. But it is here where he tells the prince that he was the son of Transylvanian Prince Francis II Racotzi, and again, he, that he was 88 when he first arrived. So, and he was there about five years. And when the prince is out of town, where he was staying in Cassell, the count dies. Yes. And is buried in Eckenford. The death was recorded at the register of the St. Nikolai Church in Eckenford, and he was buried
2: March 2nd at the cost of the burial, is listed in the accounting books of the church the following day. One of my favorite things about doing this show is a lot of times we wind up stumbling across old In Search Of's. <laughs> right. I, and there was a mention in a season two, episode two of In Search Of entitled, which is, by the way, the greatest TV show of all time, entitled The Man Who Wouldn't Die <laughs> or Who Would Never Die or something. Yeah. I can't remember the exact name. But at the end of that, Leonard Nimoy pointedly says, and it's not something that I had discovered, and yeah. maybe we have since corroborated it, but he pointedly says, as you just pointed out, that Prince Charles was not present for the funeral. No, he was out of town. and So, so we don't have witnesses, is the bottom line here.
1: Well, there's no... the, the there's documentation dude, right. of
2: his possessions at the church in Absolutely, Achenford. which we can get into because what was there
1: and what was not there is interesting. Right. But what we're saying here is the guy who ruled the area, the big cheese here, the Bürgermeister Meisterburger, yes, <laughs> like the Santa Claus is coming to town reference. This guy was not actually present. He was staying in Cassell, which yes. another area of the region. So you can look at it two ways. Either It's plausible deniability in a way. Like, well, I wasn't there. I didn't see it. But uh, hey, people said he died. So I made arrangements, paid for everything, you know, and and whatever was left over in his cash, paid for the burial. It got recorded. It looks pretty official.
2: 1784. The man is dead and gone. Dead and gone. Or is he? That's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. We'll be back in a week with part two of this series. We'd like to thank Blue Apron, Harry's.com, The Great Courses Plus, and ZipRecruiter. Please remember that supporting our sponsors helps support the show. Special thanks to John Boland. Hi, this is Trish Burdick. Hi, I'm Brent Jackson. Hi, I'm Laura Claire, and I give permission to astonishing legends to use my voice however they see fit, galaxy-wide
1: in perpetuity.
2: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The ARC and its lead researcher, Tess
1: Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. <laughs> we right